We hope you enjoy listening to this weekly podcast from Lifeline Church. Find out more by visiting lifelinechurch.co.uk. <sighs> Got all my bag of things, goodies. How are you all? You good? Excellent. Going to do a quick physical warm up. We're in the East End of London now, all right? So I want you to shoot your cuffs. Who knows what that means? Shoot your cuffs. Some of that, yeah? Hey! Welcome to the East End. Shoot your cuffs. Gary should know. Where's Gary? Rock hard your tomatoes. Half a pound of bananas. Get your cuffs. Keep that in mind, okay? <laughs> okay, so um, I want to introduce you. So I'm taking you to drama school now. We're going back in time, 30-odd years, to when I studied acting. And uh, I studied William Shakespeare. Here he is, in person. He bows. <laughs> Remarkable, remarkable character. He's a bit shy. So, William Shakespeare. How many of you know what dramatic irony is? Put your hand up if you know what dramatic irony is. Ella. Yes, the audience knows something is happening, but the people don't know what's going on. The people, the characters in the play. And I suppose the most vivid example of that would be in Panto, where you've got a geezer at the front, and you've got the person at the back, the villain, and you go, behind you, behind you. So the audience know what's going on, but the characters don't know what's happening. And a really good example of that is in a play by William Shakespeare called Henry V. Now, I was very privileged to play Henry V on a couple of occasions. Wonderful part. And Henry V was a great English king. Well, you're never quite sure how great he is compared to how Shakespeare portrays him, because Shakespeare was a great dramatist. He made everyone look amazing or bad, depending on which side of the fence. And Henry V was a king in the Middle Ages, and he was about to fight a war with France. And so what he does is, Shakespeare uses dramatic irony, where the audience know what's going on, but the characters don't. And Henry V puts on a cloak, because his men are about to go into battle the next day. And he wears this cloak, and so no one can see, no one knows who he is. And he goes among his troops to find out how they're feeling about the battle ahead. Because there are tens of thousands of French troops, and only a couple of thousand English troops. And he's thinking, my men will be fearful and I need to rally them to my cause. I need to get them excited about fighting tomorrow. I need to build up their confidence. So he gets a cloak and he wanders among his troops and Shakespeare calls it a little touch of Harry in the night. And while he's among the troops, they don't recognise him, of course. Dramatic irony, we know what's going on, but the characters don't. He's talking to them, and they say, so what's your name then? 
he says, oh, uh, <clears throat> Harry Leroy. Leroy being French for the king. Oh, a Cornish name, one of them says. <laughs> so Henry gets away with it, but he realises his men are really scared. So he prays. He prays, O God of battle, steal my soldiers' hearts. Possess them not with fear. Take from them now the sense of reckoning. If the opposed numbers pluck their hearts from them. God, stand between me and my troops and give them the courage they need to fight the battle ahead. Of course, you may know the story, you may not know the story. The battle is won gloriously because of the archers. If you want to see the film, Kenneth Branagh did a recent version. Well, I say recent, it's about 25 years old now. <laughs> oh, what it is to be... Anyway, anyway, <laughs> what it is to, to grow old. But, but, Henry V, of course, was played by the great Laurence Olivier. So if you want to see a really great production, you can go back there. And you can see all the archers firing the arrows. England won that battle. They eventually lost the war. But that's another story. <laughs> Let's not go there. But God loves dramatic irony. God loves it. He uses it again and again and again and again and again and again and again in the Bible. And none more so, I think, than in the stories of the resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus put on a cloak and wandered around among his people and they didn't know who he was. And he had a right old time. And it's part of God's sense of humour, I think. He liked to wind people up a bit. In the case of Mary, she thought he was the gardener. That's how sort of unusual he appeared. And uh, it's interesting, the resurrected Jesus, flesh and blood, real, human, but supernatural at the same time. Think of Superman, but don't, because it just doesn't measure up. He could appear and disappear at will. He cooked breakfast for the disciples on the beach, and they saw him, and they didn't recognise him as he was cooking. The, they just saw some geezers on the beach cooking, cooking fish, but it was him. And once Peter realised, he threw up his, he put on his garment and ran into the water with a very heavy garment and sludged his way through to see his, his saviour, his Lord. And one particular story I love is a story that John talked about a few weeks back, so I'll remind you of it. It's a story of a couple of guys going to Emmaus. Now, the thing about this story is when I was a young whippersnapper, I was about 16, 17, I heard someone speak about this story and it caught my heart. And I remember the guy who spoke saying, well, he talked about the end of the story. We'll come to that, in fact. I won't go there yet. So let's read it together. And I'll break off every so often to go off into little flights of fancy. And I'll come back to it. Okay. <laughs> I have to put my glasses on. Yes, yes. <clears throat> so... Luke 24, verse 13. 
you can follow it or you can just listen. It's entirely up to you. By the way, there's no PowerPoint, so you don't have to worry about screens and distractions like that. And hello to all those on Zoom. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot to I forgot to say hello. So that same day, two of the disciples were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now these were the disciples who weren't part of the core twelve. So when Jesus had his ministry, he had his best friend John, then he had his three close disciples, Peter, James and John, then he had his twelve, and then he had 72, and he had, I think, hundreds more just following him around everywhere, um, people mending their clothes and feeding them and so on. But anyway, these were probably part of the 72, I would think, so they're quite close. And these two were talking with each other about everything that had happened. So Jesus had just been crucified, brutally slaughtered, um, unequivocally murdered and was completely and utterly dead on the cross. Completely gone and their hearts were ripped out from them because they thought he was the Messiah. And the people at the time had a preconception of what the Messiah would be. I once followed a, a car um, which had a sticker on the tailgate, and it said, we want Mashiach now. And they were Orthodox Jews in there, and I thought, that's interesting. They want the Messiah. They still cry out to God for Mashiach. And they want him to be what they think he will be, which is a powerful ruler who will vanquish all his enemies and make Israel, you know, the greatest. But that's not what Mashiach really was. That's not what, that wasn't the plan God had. But the Pharisees and the chief priests and the rabbis all believed that's what he was going to be. And so did the disciples. So when Jesus was crucified, their dream was shattered completely and utterly. And he just became yet another person who pretended to be great but wasn't. Or so they thought. So they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Not sure how they were kept from recognizing him. Mary didn't recognize him at first. The disciples were astonished to see him when he appeared. And again, at the beach, they didn't recognize him. So maybe he wore cloaks and hoods. Maybe they just weren't expecting him because, you know, he died. They saw him on the cross, dead, dead. So why would they expect him to be alive? So they obviously thought, well, just some bloke. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas, I like that name, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here? In these days? What things? He asked. Dramatic irony. We know. They don't know. And every time I read it, I just go through that whole thing of the not knowing again in my head. But uh, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. 
But we had hoped, verse 21, we had hoped he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped he would raise up an army, destroy the Romans and create a kingdom that would last forever on the throne of King David. Well, it was the throne of King David, but it wasn't that kind of kingdom. And he tried to explain that in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, but they were listening. I don't know if they fully got it. Just as when I first read the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't really know half of what he was going on about, and it all sounded very complicated to me until I was filled with the Holy Spirit and then I could see with fresh eyes. We'll come back to that too. Oh, hopefully. <laughs> I keep saying we're going to come back to this and that and the other. We'll see. Oh, and I'm also going to sing, so bear, bear with me. Ah, right. We had hoped he'd be the one to resume Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition... As if that wasn't bad enough, someone of the women awaited us. They went to the tomb early this morning and they couldn't find his body. But they came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Yeah, right. Some of our companions went to the tomb, found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus, so it can't be true. Now, what's interesting about this is they had a preconception and they poo-pooed what the women had said. Just hysterical. How insulting. What's interesting is when you see films about Jesus that are directed by people who don't believe, it's fascinating because they sort of whitewash the resurrection. They can't cope with it. Um, Jesus Christ Superstar ends with the cross. Poor dead Jesus. And the thing is, many hundreds and thousands of people are worshipping a poor dead Jesus because they just haven't got, they just haven't got it. And it's really sad. It's one thing to have a crucifix on the wall, but there's no one on there. There shouldn't be anyone on there because he rose again. And had it not been for that, the crucifixion would have been a waste of time anyway. The resurrection is pivotal to everything we stand for, believe and understand. They were just learning this at the time. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Now at this point they really should have recognised him because Jesus had a habit of saying this kind of thing all the time. How foolish you are, you wicked unbelieving generation, how long, how long must I put up with you? And I often read that and think, oh I don't know if I could cope with that. Constantly being told off. He wasn't telling them off, he was just agonised because he realised that they just were so blinded by the spirit of the age, by the spirit of this world which is to say don't listen. It's all rubbish. Just keep on keeping on. Just numb your heart, numb your mind. Pretend none of this is important. So he wanted to wake them up. Come on, wake up! Did not the Messiah, Jesus said, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. So, what passages did he quote? Let's just go back a bit. I just want to talk about a thing that I discovered when I read a, a particular book about um, Jesus's sort of inheritance and what people were expecting of the Messiah. Priests and rabbis at the time believed the Messiah would be able to perform four miracles. And whenever someone claimed to be a Messiah, the priests and rabbis would go and interview that person just to see 
and pretty soon come to the conclusion, charlatan. But Jesus started to annoy them. And I often wondered, when I read the Bible, why do certain miracles really wind up the Pharisees? And why did Jesus wait before raising Lazarus from the dead? And why did that become the miracle that broke the camel's back? When he raised Lazarus from the dead, it completely unhinged the rulers of the time. Why is that? Well, the, the priests at the time believed Messiah would be able to perform four miracles that no one else could perform. Leprosy. They believed that people inherited sin, so healing someone of leprosy was essentially forgiving their sin, and only the Messiah could do that. Jesus had an annoying habit of forgiving people of their sin, like the guy who was paralytic. Your sins are forgiven. I know what you're thinking. How can a man like me forgive sins? Well, just to say, show you the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, get up, take a mat, and walk, and the, the man did. So he not only healed lepers, he forgave people. That was clue number one, that A, he was the Messiah, and B, they were going to get annoyed, because they didn't believe it. Their minds were blocked. To sort out someone who wasn't able to speak, Similar reasons. Jesus cast out a spirit that made someone unable to speak. John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. A key characteristic of a Messiah would be to heal a man born blind. Not someone who goes blind during their lifetime, as Jesus also healed, so they didn't really care about the guy who had mud spit in his eyes or whatever. But the man born blind, they really were annoyed. And that's why they stopped him. They interviewed him. They interviewed his parents. And they eventually said, I don't believe he was born blind. Because the only person who could heal a man born blind was the Messiah. Because to be born blind meant you were born into sin. And only the Messiah could cure sin. It's essentially what they were saying. So... Instead of actually saying, let's interview the, oh, wow, he must be the Messiah. No, they said, no, can't be, can't be. He's a carpenter's son. He has dust on his feet. He can't be the Messiah. And so they refused to believe, even then. As a wonderful part of the man born blind, he says, uh, ha, nobody ever heard of opening a man, eyes of a man born blind. The blind man said this to the Pharisees, and they, they chucked him out of the temple because he was being insolent. And then there was a belief that the soul, when someone died, would stay around for three days and then you could raise him from the dead at that point. But after three days, only the Messiah could raise the dead. Jesus waited deliberately for Lazarus to die and to be, born, and to be uh, buried for three days. And then on the fourth day, when supposedly only the Messiah could raise him, Jesus rose him from the dead. That was the point where the Pharisees and chief priests and elders said, enough is enough, let's kill him, because he thinks he's the Messiah. They never thought, apart from Nicodemus and a couple of others, hang on a second, do you know, duh, he might actually be the Messiah? Now, it's easy for us to judge them at the time, but they were, they were the sort of charismatics of the day. They thought they had it all. They thought they were all wrapped up. 
So beware judging them, because sometimes I think I know it all, and I have to come back and learn otherwise. He'd been buried four days, verse 17. Uh, So, he would have talked about that. He would have also talked about Genesis 3.15, Jesus, when he was talking to the two disciples, remember, on the road. Genesis 3.15, Eve's descendant would crush the serpent's head, so sin would be conquered. He might have talked about King David having the promise that someone descended from him would be on the throne forever and ever. And even David didn't really fully understand this. He probably thought a king. And all the kings probably thought a king. But actually, it was a different kind of king. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. Echoing Palm Sunday, several hundred years before it happened. Isaiah 53. Isaiah's full of stories about Jesus. <laughs> I once wanted to write a book called The Gospel According to the Old Testament because it might be a bit boring, I don't know. But so much of the Old Testament has the gospel buried in it. It's joyous. And Isaiah's <laughs> none more so, I tell you. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, Isaiah 53, verse 4. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. God the healer. Mm. Zechariah 12.10, they will look at me, the one they have pierced. Again, talking about piercing, you know. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. He might even have asked them, what did your friend cry out when he was crucified? Um, Father, forgive them? Yeah, what else did he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do you think happened at that point? Who was he quoting? He was quoting Psalm 22. Jesus lived by quoting the Psalms. He lived by quoting Deuteronomy. He lived by quoting the prophets. He knew his stuff inside out. And when he was on the cross, he quoted Psalm 22. And everything in Psalm 22, written hundreds of years before he died, is echoed in that psalm. And Malachi 3.1, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the, suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire. He will come, says the Lord Almighty. And the two disciples were gobsmacked. In fact, their hearts were burning within them. So as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued as if he was going further. A bit of dramatic irony there. All right, I'm off. Thank you. And they said, hang on, wait, wait, wait. Stay with us. Come have a meal. It's late. Now, there's a very obvious parallel here. Jesus is always walking past. When was the last time you said, hang on, Jesus, come stay with me. Let's talk. Sometimes he has to do things to get our attention, as I found out in the last month. I'll tell you a bit about that in a minute. Hopefully, we'll see. I won't go into details. (laughs) They urged him strongly. 
stay with us, for it's an early evening, the day is almost over. So he went, oh, all right then. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, gave thanks, and he shot his cuffs. I want you all to shoot your cuffs now. Ready? Here's the bread. Give thanks. Shoot your cuffs. What happens when you shoot your cuffs? What do you see? Your watch. Where's your watch? On your wrist. What else was on Jesus' wrist? Holes. They saw his holes. And he vanished. Fascinating. I love that story. And I remember the, the guy who, uh, who spoke about it when I was at school. He said, have you ever felt like your heart's burning within you? And I had said at the time, yes, mine is now. When was the last time your heart burned within you for the love of Jesus? I've been through a health scare in the last month. Been a funny old time. April was kind of wiped out in, in and out of hospital and so on. But there was a point where I was in the middle of the night, uh, three o'clock in the morning. A friend of mine had breast cancer and had a similar experience. She said, always look out for the three in the morning moments because they're the times when you wake up, you feel disorientated, discombobulated. You feel, where is God in all this? And then you can invite him into that space. Three in the morning came, I think it was a day after I got back after a stay in hospital, and um, he was there. I quoted Psalm 84 to myself, how lovely is your dwelling place, and he dwelt with me there. It's only about 20 minutes, then I went back to sleep, but it was enough. When was the last time your heart burned within you? I believe a lot of us need to have a fresh experience of Holy Spirit in our lives. I believe a lot of the illness and sickness we're seeing is God saying, not he doesn't send the illness and sickness. Let's just be clear about that. It's the fall of, of creation that causes these things. But Jesus is sovereign and he says in the midst of all this rubbish, come on, come back to me. As a church, come back to me. We're learning that, aren't we, with our regular praying coming to him and so they asked each other were not our hearts burning within us while they talked on the road and opened the scriptures to us so they got up at once and they returned to jerusalem they found the 11 assembled together and saying it's true the lord has risen and it's appeared to simon so the 11 had seen well simon had seen jesus at that point and then the 11 eventually saw him as well the rest of the 11. So, when God sort of dealt with me at the age of 19, he sort of, um, <laughs> all the PA guys are getting, getting their act together. Okay. Yeah, we have to have a transfer of microphones, otherwise it causes all sorts of problems. Um, and basically, uh, when, when I first sort of realized that I needed to walk with Jesus daily through the power of his Holy Spirit. And you can't do it any other way. You can't do it any other way. You have to do it 
with the power of the Holy Spirit. Ooh, change mics, how exciting. I, uh, I wrote a song, the uh, very first song I think I wrote after that had happened. And I'd always wanted to become John Lennon. <laughs> well, that went well. <laughs> I wasn't even Liverpoolian. <laughs> what was I thinking? Let's not talk about Liverpool. <laughs> In joke, okay. But I wanted to be famous. I wanted to be a great whatever. And I realized at the time that, you know, Randy Stonehill, a Christian songwriter, put it succinctly. Um, I thought that it would thrill me, then I saw that it would kill me. Now it strikes me as a little absurd. And it's true because John was shot in the back. And uh, when that happened, I suddenly was caught up short. Do I want to really give my life for fame? And I think God was in there as well. Why don't you give your life for something a little more longer lasting? So, I wrote this song. I haven't sung it for many years, so bear with me. Hearts were downcast as we walked the road together to the west. Our minds were troubled as we spoke of a prophet's sorry death. A man approached us and we turned to greet him when he called. We let him join us on our way and he questioned our saddened hearts. Listen, mister, don't you realize what we've been through? The whole Jerusalem is stirred. A prophet from God came to bring peace to our land. But he was killed, and now his body is gone. He turned to us and he told us of how the scriptures said Messiah would die and after three days he would rise up from the dead his wisdom amazed us as we walked to our home in the night he turned to go away but we invited him inside Hearts catch fire within us when he spoke. To hear such wisdom seems so unreal. The stranger from the road, he broke our bread and smiled. We saw his hands as he vanished into air. catch fire within us when he spoke to hear such wisdom seems so unreal the stranger from the road he broke our bread and smiled 
We saw his hands as he vanished into air for listening to this podcast by Lifeline Church. We hope this message has been an encouragement to you. We are a relational church with a passion to demonstrate God's love to one another and our surrounding community in real and practical ways. We believe that God has called us to have an impact on our families, our communities and our nation. We'd love to connect further with you, so please do visit our website at lifelinechurch.co.uk on Facebook, lifeline.church.uk or Twitter at Lifeline UK.